Well, good morning. Good morning. It's good to worship with you this morning. A happy Memorial Day weekend to you, especially those who have served. And uh, well, it's good to see you. I know this is uh, one of those days in the summer that especially sort of feels like kind of every excuse to skip. Uh, so I'm just happy to see you here prioritizing worshiping the Lord. Uh, I was on a little trip with our, our family a couple weeks ago. Thank you for that, by the way. I appreciate that. And uh, we went, you know, made the effort to go find a little church in Colorado to go to. And there's something special, not only about sort of the message it sort of sends to our kids um, to do that, but also just to be an outsider at church. Uh, it's for a lot of us, not experience. We have a lot and we just kind of come in and um, to feel the awkward tension of standing there and going like this <laughs> and realizing there are people uh, among us each week feeling that way. Um, anyway, here we are. We have just finished definition of a whole disciple. We're a church longing to be a whole church forming whole disciples. Every one of us becoming whole, well-rounded, robust, deeply formed in Jesus as we help each person take the next step to do the same. Uh, and of course, that series was wonderful for us to sort of get on the same page, painting the same picture, same, same puzzle box front uh, as we put each piece together. And now we're moving on, but not leaving that behind at all. Uh, and so we're going to be in James today, the book of James. Our, our summer is going to be all about the book of James. Um, you can join me there. The passage, passages we'll be in will be on the screen behind me. Um, so I'll, I'll read verse 1 and give us a little bit of context for the book of James and kind of tell you where we're going with this series as we go. So here's what it says in verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes of the dispersion, greetings. So James is a letter written by a man called James to uh, several churches, probably not 12 as he says here, but several churches throughout the ancient world. James was the sort of senior pastor, we might call him, of the church in Jerusalem. Uh, in the first 15 or 20 years after Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, you probably remember it when we were in the book of Acts, which is what we were doing before the definition of a whole disciple series. Uh, we heard about James. We saw him in action, uh, leading the church there in Jerusalem uh, through some really tumultuous times as the church especially came under persecution. And James himself was beheaded by, uh, by King Herod. He hoped that, uh, he, you know, he saw the church in Jerusalem and how it was thriving and growing and, and, and changing things in that city, uh, just as we hope for a Parkview to do. And he thought the easy way to put an end to that was by killing James. Uh, that did not work. <laughs> uh, did not learn the lesson from Jesus, I guess, uh, that killing him didn't change things and didn't happen with James either. But we know from the historical records, not only Christian records, but from secular records as well, that James was killed in 62 AD, which means this letter was written uh, based off of some of the context of the letter. Also, we'd guess somewhere in about 45 AD, so about 12 years after Jesus raised from the dead. He says it's written to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, which uh, to put things shortly, uh, would mean Jewish Christians who have been dispersed, okay? They're Jewish Christians, 12 tribes, have to do with the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, so Jewish Christians who are worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ, as he says, outside of their native land. And so most likely, this is James the pastor writing probably mostly to people who, whom he had known who had fled away from Jerusalem because of the persecution that was clearly mounting against the church. Uh, his, his audience is mostly poor people, mostly Jewish people um, who are living in a place where, and you know, we sort of hear that and we think, oh, they had to move. 
It was much, <laughs> moving was not really an easy thing in the ancient world. All the connections that you had, it wasn't like, go look for a house on the market, you know, see what's available. Um, this was a terrible trial they were going through. So a few things that you can expect as we work through the book of James this summer. First of all, James is highly practical. He is focused on, on wisdom and how to actually live the Christian life. Um, when, when we've spent a lot of time with the Apostle Paul who's reasoning with very different Gentile ideas, secular ideas about who God is, that is not James's deal. He's, his main thing is you need to do what you know. You need to do what you know and know what you do. Okay, just do it. Probably practical. Um, James is often referred to as the Proverbs of the New Testament. Um, it's sort of considered a book of wisdom, even though it's arranged a little bit differently than the book of Proverbs. So, so James is highly practical. Um, it's also concise and direct. Okay, James doesn't draw out long arguments. He'll say something, give a command, maybe an illustration, sort of an earthy illustration, and then he'll say, now, now do that. <laughs> do it. Okay, so if, if you often find yourself sort of frustrated, get to the point, pastor. Okay, what am I supposed to do here? Uh, don't worry. James is here for you, okay? Um, James is also, like I said, very focused on actions. And we talked about our definition of a disciple as someone who learns Jesus in their head, mind, learn about Jesus, love Jesus and changing our affections and also living, carrying out, acting in, with our will. James, if he had to pick a favorite, it's live, live Jesus. You need to live what you know. You need to do what you have learned. And um, as you'll see today and many times throughout this series, there was sort of a bit of a tagline to James. It would be, don't, don't tell me what you believe about God. I'm just going to watch you and, and I'll find out what you believe about God just by watching what you do. Um, I sat down with Mark and Doug, our pastor at East Campus, uh, a few weeks ago, and we sort of recorded some of our thoughts, a little more extended introduction to James and what we're excited about you guys hearing this summer, and that's on our training podcast if you want to check it out. We put that up on Wednesday, so give that a listen if you're curious to hear more. Uh, maybe the most interesting thing about the book of James, though, is that James is the half-brother of Jesus. So this is Jesus, earthly speaking, it's his brother. Um, he grew up with Jesus as his big brother. I can't decide if that would be amazing or terrible. <laughs> uh, I'm always being compared to literally Jesus. Um, uh, and, and yet, of, and you think of all people on earth, Jewish people uh, probably maybe throughout time were the least likely to think a human could be God. Even today, see, when, when Orthodox Jews write, it's G-D. They won't even, don't even spell the name, right? Um, and yet he came to believe that his big brother was God in the flesh. You see that in the first verse, servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that throughout James's life, he actually didn't believe in Jesus. He grew up with Jesus as an older brother and did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. We remember when he came to get Jesus out of the marketplace. Remember, Jesus was in his 30s at that point because they thought he was acting crazy. James was one of them with him. And we find out in 1 Corinthians 13 that the Lord actually appears to James after he is raised from the dead. And apparently this encounter was so significant that James came to believe that Jesus was who he said he was. So maybe you're here and you're not so sure about the claims of Christianity. Uh, maybe you're here and you're really familiar with the claims of Christianity like James would have been, and yet you just can't quite get there. James is for you. He went through that same transition. And so there's a lot to look forward to. Uh, maybe you can tell I'm excited. So let's, let's just jump in. We'll be in verses 2 through 11 today. I'll read it for you now. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. 
and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is tossed and driven by the wind. That person must not believe that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, for like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. This is the Lord's word. And if you hear nothing else today and come away with just one thing, it would be this. Pursue the path of radical wholeness. Pursue the path of radical wholeness. In this first 11 verses, James gives us not just an overview of the main themes of his letter, which he does, but he also plots for us the general pathway for growth in the Christian life, as James tells it. Um, A pattern for trekking toward what he will call wholeness, be perfect and complete or whole, uh, marked by radical integrity of soul, to reject double-mindedness, double soul is what he calls it, and embrace uh, what he calls wholeness. And so that's what we must do. We must pursue radical wholeness. Now before we begin, although we've really begun, haven't we? Let's pray together. Lord, please bless our time in your word, Um, and over these next few months in particular as we learn from the book of James, we invite you, we invite you, Lord, to produce deep integrity, radical wholeness, you call it, in our lives at the deepest level. As we look to Jesus, um, our example, the one who loved you with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, we want that kind of deep change. And so we pray for that. We pray for East Campus as they begin this series as well, as Wade preaches, bless him, uh, and all of them there. We pray for the churches in the city, all the churches in the city that are faithfully proclaiming your word this morning. Would you bless them? Help us to follow you faithfully and bear fruit for your kingdom as we love you and one another and those around us. And we pray all this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. And so uh, James gives us sort of three lessons, three, three shifts we mu- must make to get onto this uh, pathway of radical integrity. The first we see in verses 2 through 4. First he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Let's stop there. <laughs> Is there anything that comes less naturally than the first 10 words of this passage? <laughs> Count it all joy. Count it means um, it's what an accountant does. Reckon. You, you decide to attribute this as joy. Uh, this is a command. It's to account it as joy. Notice he does not say suffering is joyful, nor good, nor a cause for celebration in itself. We know that. The Bible's very clear about that. And yet, when we face trials, we have the choice to respond to them by expecting the Lord to bring joy count it as joy. Um, This is difficult. Surely, don't trials steal our joy. Trials steal our hope. Is there anything more hopeless and less joyful than facing difficulties? Now, instantly in our minds, we have the biggest trials in life, 
that come up, death and destruction and sickness and disease and all those things. But notice he says various trials, trials of various kinds. And so uh, we're imagining not just the biggest level, but the smallest level and the hangnails and the bills and the, just the stress of human relationships. In every way, God somehow can lead that to joy. Now, suffering is part of life for all of us. And it's known every culture, every sort of ideology has to give uh, its members some way to deal with suffering because we all just have to deal with it. To get to gain and retain and build a durable sense of self, a durable sense of meaning uh, so that suffering doesn't sort of destroy us, destroy our sense of self and destroy our joy. Now, in many traditional societies, societies, the way that you handled suffering uh, was by assuming that suffering was sort of deserved, something that happened to you because you sort of some, you did something wrong. Your ancestors just did something wrong. Um, we see that. You remember when John, uh, in John 9, when Jesus' disciples come to him, they see a man who's blind. And they ask him, now Jesus was uh, this man who sinned or his parents that he was born blind? And does Jesus accept the traditional view? No. He says, uh, neither one, but it was for the glory of God. A little bit cryptic. Okay, so he, he says, no, that's not quite right. In our secular society, where we've sort of detached uh, meaning from circumstances and we've sort of separated from the supernatural, um, suffering is just something that happens in a material world that's sort of governed by the forces that are upon us, whatever they happen to be. Um, market forces or evolutionary forces or whatever you want to call it, suffering is just part of life. And so the sooner that you reconcile yourself to that suffering and just account it as inevitable, um, the sooner you'll feel okay about it. Now, let me ask you, do either of those ring true to you? Do, do either of those approaches give you the resources you need to respond to them faithfully without crumbling? I'd say no. And so James gives us another way. Uh, verses 3 and 4 says this, For you know, so how do we count it all joy uh, when we face trials of various kinds? He says, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That word complete is, is uh, from the Greek word holos, which is where we get our word whole. So when I talk about wholeness, this is what we're talking about. The Bible, by the way, has a lot to say about suffering. So much to say about suffering. James is hitting on just one piece of that. Remember Jesus, when he approaches the tomb of his friend Lazarus, what does he do? Does he say, ah, this is joyful. <laughs> no, he shouts and snorts and weeps and cries, and he's angry at death. Death is an intruder in his good world. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane as he's facing his death. The book of Hebrews says it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. And yet what did that endurance look like? Sweating drops of blood. And so let's remember as we read this that uh, this is not a stoic sort of stiff upper lip version of just enduring things because we have to. It's something else. Um, but what, what James points out is crucial um, because it teaches us one of the things that God is doing in the midst of our suffering. It's not pointless. It's not meaningless. In fact, the word he says is that it's productive. It produces something. It doesn't just produce pain. Um, and so he says suffering serves a purpose. It has the effect, he says, of purifying, testing. That word testing comes from the world of metallurgy. And, uh, of course, they would throw in, you know, even then they were casting things, and they'd throw metal um, of unknown provenance into a crucible. And by, you know, 
putting it to incredible heat, it would melt and up to the top would float the impurities, the dross, the things that needed to be drawn out so it could produce something strong, something beautiful, something useful, something good. And yet it had to go through that process. That's a word that James uses, that our trials are a crucible that, while unpleasant, produce something good, something beautiful, something useful. Um, and according to James, don't miss this, this is the pattern of growth. This is the pattern, not just of general goodness and fun and progress. This is the pattern of growth in the Christian life, is encountering difficulty. And remember, we instantly go to the biggest things. We'll get to that. But day by day, moment by moment, processing difficulties. And in doing so, if we do so faithfully, letting it have its full effect, there's a hard sentence for us, it will produce endurance and wholeness and, I mean, dare we say, the Bible says it, perfection. Not on this side of, the, of heaven, but eventually. Now, imagine this. Imagine a young man, 14 years old, he walks into the gym. He walks down the street. He says, I'd like to become quite strong, okay? Uh, football season is coming up. I've got some big ambitions. He goes to a personal trainer. He says, I've got some big goals. I'd like to get really strong. He says, what is your goal? The trainer says, what is your goal? And he says, I would like to bench press 300 pounds by the end of the summer. Okay. He says, oh, I'm just looking at you. Let me just ask, how much do you weigh? He says, 90 pounds. <laughs> okay. Now, might not be possible, but he says, we're going to do the best we can. Okay. And he says, okay, where's the bar? I'm ready. I'm ready to get started. He says, what are you talking about? He says, isn't that what I do? There's bench press. Put 300 pounds on there, and then I'll just do it and keep doing it, keep trying, until at the end of the summer, I'm sure I'll be able to get it, get it up, right? No, <laughs> that's not. The personal trainer says, all that's going to do is crush you, right? What does he do? He says, okay, can you do a push-up? <laughs> he says, what's that? Okay, he says, hold on. Okay, so you can do one push-up, great. Let's try for two. Two, okay. What, next day, how does he feel? Terrible. You ever done that? You know, you kind of get out of it, let yourself get out of shape the next day. You go into the gym, you say, I'm going to get back into it. Okay, I'm going to get there. And then you feel awful, right? And yet, what is that? That process of pain, that process of, you know, your feel, what you're feeling is your muscles' fibers have been torn. Uh, they've been torn apart. And your body's response of healing it is actually what makes you stronger. It's preparing you for the bigger load to come. I don't even know if I need to draw the connection for you. This is what, if we will entrust ourselves in the small things to God as we suffer in the trials, God has a pathway before you, if you will entrust yourself, your soul to him, where he will bring you through the spiritual version of, let's do one push-up today. <laughs> let's see if we can do one. It's going to hurt. It's going to hurt. And yet in the hurt, if you respond to it well, your healing will begin to produce strength and wholeness and beauty. Now, our temptation, like that 90-pound kid, is to, is to brush off all of those little exercises and say, you know what, I'll just wait until the day. I'll just do it on the, I'm just going to go for the 300. And guess what? We get crushed. You get crushed. Um, hasn't experience proven this to you? <laughs> Um, everyone, everyone faces trials in their life. You know, I'm sure each of you know, people who have had not easy lives, but lives of relative ease, who have become bitter and angry and just not fun to be around. They're sort of miserable. 
And on the other hand, I'm sure each of you know people who have had just terrible lives, circumstances that are just sort of unimaginable, and yet their, their circumstances have not hardened them uh, to God or to others. They've softened them. They've become, their souls have become receptive. They've become kinder, even though they've been treated poor. How do you explain that? James is giving us the answer. There's a way of letting God work on your soul in the midst of trials. If you'll entrust him to it, if you'll let suffering have its full effect to bring you to a place of growth. Now, some of you here are, this is not theoretical. And by the way, remember, James is not writing this to people who are theoretically suffering. He's writing to people who are in the middle of it. Some of you are in the middle of it. And I'm just so sorry. And... Jesus is, I believe, sorry too. Um, he wants you to draw near to him. Um, many of you are, are here and you're encouraging others to grow. Or maybe you're, you would say, I don't know if I'm really, I don't say I'm suffering at the highest level right now. This is the moment to learn this truth. Do not wait until you are under the 300-pound bar <laughs> um, to learn this truth and to begin to put it into practice. Um, as you're helping others learn too, um, don't, don't be afraid to say, what are, you, what are your trials right now? Um, and we're, you know, we're good Midwestern folk. And so we said, fine, I'm fine. Everything's fine. I'm doing really well, okay? No, you're not. <laughs> trials of various kinds. It's coming. It's every day, isn't it? It's every 10 minutes if we're really looking around and, and receptive, whether it's inside of me or happening to me or the temptation that I want to do X, Y, Z. Um, it's there. And in facing those daily little nagging things, we will be beautified by the Lord. Um, and so let's, how does this actually happen and how do you actually do that? How do you actually let it have its full effect, steadfastness have its full effect? I want to give, this is an intentionally silly example, so forgive me. But on Tuesday afternoon, go to work and that one coworker, we all know who it is, okay, um, makes just a slightly sarcastic comment sort of vaguely toward you. Did they mean it? I don't know. Um, what are you going to do with that? <laughs> well, there are a lot, of things, a lot of things you could do that would, in essence, short-circuit the process of growth. Okay? We've seen these people at the gym, haven't we? Okay? All, they're only cheating themselves. We know it. Okay, you want to tell them. There's, there's so many ways we can sort of short-circuit the path of growth that God, I think, wants to do. I don't know what exactly he wants to do, but there are many ways we can short-circuit it. First of all, let's just hit him right back with a, a sarcastic comment just like they gave us. Okay? Oh, that'll make me feel better. Or you could sort of be quiet, silent, and yet sort of just inwardly stew. And... Uh, think of the 15 best and most caustic remarks that I would say if I didn't need this job really bad. <laughs> okay, and kind of get, get back at them that way. You could get sort of inwardly bitter with your supervisor, let's say, who should have stopped this ages ago and just kind of storm at them for the whole weekend. You're just thinking about it. You could compensate yourself for that pain by overindulging in the good things God had given, food and drink and free time and, or taking that out on your family. I mean, there's so many ways you could, you could sort of short-circuit the process of growth. But what if, and this is what James is asking us to do, in that moment, you came to a gracious God and said, that hurt. I did not like that. I do not want more of that. Um, and yet, what do you want me to do here? I'm, I'm going to expect you to help me. I don't, 
I need help. And you began to tell him all of those things that you would rather do, all the ways you'd like to short-circuit this path of growth, um, things you'd like to do instead of responding in a way that you know would be faithful to him, and ask him to take care of you. Now, probably immediately you'd think, well, I need to have wisdom. In, in so many of the circumstances where I have trials in front of me, I sort of have a choice. Um, you know, I, I think of certain, should I, should I confront my coworker? That'd be a, is that the wrong thing to do? No, probably not. Um, should I go straight to HR, you know, and tell them? I don't, I, you know, should I quit my job? I, I don't know. You see what I mean? And that's just one circumstance. How about this? Here's a trial. I know I should share my faith with others. And yet that scares me an awful lot. Um, now, I, here's my neighbor. I feel really hesitant to go even just strike up a conversation and build a relationship because I'm afraid of what's going to happen there. Now, is that the Lord's leading into hesitancy? Or do you need to just push through it and be courageous and be willing to take a risk and sort of suffer in that moment? All that to say, suffering uniquely requires wisdom because you're on shaky ground. Where do I turn? What do I do? And it's not as if you can look it up in the Bible and say, now, when my coworker says something mean, that would be in 1 Paul 5, right? No, I just made that up. Um, it's not right there, but there are principles we need, and we need wisdom from the Lord and from those around us. Okay, so let's, James, guess what? Don't worry. James has the answer for that too, 5 through 8. He says this. I'll just start in 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, he knows we would lack wisdom. Notice how, how he has that connecting word there too. Um, you'd be perfect and complete, he says in first, uh, verse 4, lacking nothing. And then he uses a connecting word. He does that a lot. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. And so what are we meant to do? Like I said, trials call for wisdom in a way that peace doesn't. We don't feel flummoxed in the midst of abundance often about what we ought to do sometimes. Um, but we're in the midst of trial. I mean, should I get out of this? Should I move forward? Should, do I, what do I need to do here? I feel uniquely sort of isolated, spiritually speaking. What do I do? Um, what we need is a new posture of soul. So if our first move that we need to make to pursue this path of radical wholeness is to adopt a new response to trials, the second is we need a new posture of soul in the midst of them. Um, and this is what he says, okay? He says, let him ask God, okay? Just like we said. Through prayer, bring, bring those trials before the Lord who is listening. Seek his will for a path forward. Look, what ought I to do? And what can we expect in that moment? What should we expect in that moment? When we are pressed and enduring but fading and it's difficult and we come to him and we humble ourselves before God Almighty and we ask him what he expects of us in this moment, what would be wise? If we're honest with ourselves, we tend to not expect much. And that's what James is actually pointing out. He goes on to talk about the doubter who's double-minded. We tend not to expect much and that's why we need Chapter 1, verse 5. So let's enjoy every bit of it. Let him ask God who gives generously. Generously. In our moments of pain and difficulty and strain, whether it's a hangnail or whatever, the worst thing you can think of, our Father in heaven, who loves us, who created us, is not looking down on us with sort of a miserly, um, stingy frown thinking uh, what's the least I can do for her right now 
I mean, make your request of me, and then I'll, I'll figure out kind of what I can do, okay? God is not sort of worried about his margins, expecting you to scrape by on the, the smallest amount of help possible. James wants to remind us, and we need to remember this, because in the midst of trials, this is the moment where we tend to believe just the opposite. God is barely with me. God is interesting in, interested in helping only the smallest amount. Rather, it says, God who gives generously. Growth through our trials and pain does not mean spiritual poverty and feeling completely unsupported by God. Our God gives generously. Let him ask God who gives generously to all. <laughs> to all. So much packed up in these five letters. Why put this in here? I'll tell you why, and you realize it too. Because just about everyone in this room, in the midst of trials and pain, cry out to God, and we almost immediately think, I think God might help me a little if only I were a little bit more special. If only I had been a little bit more faithful up to this point. God, basically, is interested in helping, you know, faithful people, spiritual superheroes, you know, really serious Christians, one who have it better together, or maybe in particular, the people who didn't skip all the push-ups, and now here I am under the bench press getting crushed by the 300-pound weight, and he's going, bet you wish you had followed my advice before, don't ya? Rather, he gives generously to all. <laughs> if this weren't in the Bible, I'm not sure if we would believe it. Uh, without reproach, without reproach, without sort of sticking his finger in our side going, don't you wish you had thought a little bit more before you got yourself in this situation? Especially when our suffering and our trials clearly have something to do with mistakes we made. We expect to come to God and him sort of say, I guess I'll get you out of this one. Instead, who is God in the midst of our trials? He is, he wants to make clear to you this morning, our God could not be more approachable to you in this moment. Could not be more approachable. Do you know how far he has gone to make that clear? He has sent his own son. He has suffered himself. How could he make it more clear to you that he wants to be available, that he will give to you generously, without reproach, without, without a word back in your face about what you, how you got here? And so we know this, right? We know, well, at least now we all do. <laughs> Up here, we know it. We've learned it. We've learned Jesus. We've learned that's what God is like, okay? This is the easiest part of learning. Um, now James is going to take us to an uncomfortable place. And he's going to say, as I said, he'll say time and time again, oh, that's what you believe. Let's find out. Let's find out. Verse 6 says, But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So when James says, ask in faith without doubting, he doesn't mean that you, if you ever have even a moment of wavering confidence in God that you're sort of doing it wrong. But what he is saying is that when we don't go to God, the reason that we don't go to God, the reason that we don't actually, you know, follow through on what James is calling us to do is a very simple reason. 
is because we lack integrity. I told you James is blunt. <laughs> it's because we lack integrity. There is a difference between what we say we believe about God and the way we live. And I think James uses this example in particular because trials, difficulties, stress, and pressure, they show us what we're really like at the deepest level. That's why I mean when I say radical integrity. When he says double-minded man, that word mind, it's often translated that way, um, but it's, it's the word soul. He's talking about the deepest level of ourselves. We believe this about God, and, and the moment that the skies kind of darken, we find we are not so sure. What James wants is for us to do what we have said, to follow through. Uh, and, and of course, in this case, James is simply saying this. You believe in a generous God who, who gives to all without reproach, uh, to all, well and good, orthodox, hooray, very happy for you. But anyone can write that down on a piece of paper. What about when you're suffering? Every one of us who is being honest with ourselves in this moment, in this room, has to admit, we, we don't, we can't measure up to the ideals that we claim. This is hard. We are all, to one degree or another, suffering from a lack of, of radical unity of heart. We're unstable, as he says. We, we, we're more swayed by our circumstances than by a steadfast confidence in who God is. And we all need God to come in and radically mend the divisions that exist in our hearts between what we say and what we know about God and what we actually know and what we actually do. Now, James is not doing this to be harsh or overbearing, but to usher us into the newfound freedom of confidence in who God is. Because if we follow through on this, if we actually begin to do what we know we ought to do, we will find not cursing, not pain, not our lives will get immeasurably better. There will be joy. You will find new life as you begin to mend this brokenness with the Lord's help. And so to pursue this path of radical wholeness, we do. We need a new response to trial. We, trials. We need a new posture of soul toward God as we see those things and we're honest about them. But then what? The good news is we have verses 9 through 11 to show us a new source of stability. That's the last thing we need, a new source of stability. If we're not depending on our circumstances, which he says are like wind and like the sea, always moving, always shifting, uh, up one day, down the next, what we need is a new source of stability. And he gives us that in verses 9 through 11. He says this, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Let me say that again. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. And the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. And so the cure for double-minded instability is radical wholeness that's achieved through a new source of stability. We need solid ground. How can we find it? He says this. Um, yeah, well, I'll just put it simply. Okay, uh, Dr. Tim Keller, pastor in New York, he just passed away this last week. Yeah, two weeks ago, I think. Um, huge influence on me, and probably the most powerful thing, thing people will most remember is his simple way of explaining the gospel. He said it like this. He said, the gospel is this. We're more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. 
And yet at this very same time, we're more accepted and loved than we ever dared hope. Think about this. We're so bad that the only thing that could rescue us is the death of the only perfect person. And yet we're so accepted and loved that when we think about, when, when God looks at us and thinks about us, what does he see? He doesn't see our mess. He sees all that Jesus has done. He sees all of his perfection. And so in the midst of trials, do we, ever, we never have to wonder, is God really for me? He's for the, I know he's for the good people and the people who read their Bibles this week and the people who did their spiritual sit-ups. And yet God doesn't, he doesn't look at you and see all that. He sees all that Jesus has done. And so those two things are true at the same time, more desperately flawed than we ever dared hope, than we ever could believe, but more loved and accepted than we ever dared hope. How are we going to, in the midst of everyday sort of undulation and variation in what we're going to experience, keep a solid footing? We need, here's my simple way of saying it, you need to leverage your circumstances to preach the whole gospel to yourself. Think about this. He says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Who's he boasting to? You know, who's she boasting to? Himself, herself. Uh, some people, here's what he's saying, some people spend all day being told with words or without words, with glances, with just the reality of their circumstances, with social media, you are a failure. You're just a failure. You have not met our expectations. They don't have the right job or they have no job or uh, they're not attractive or they're out of shape or um, how are you this old and you're still single or I, I don't know, insert whatever thing probably is coming to your mind at this very moment. And in some, basically the world's sermon to them on a daily basis is you're condemned, you're lost, you're broken, beyond repair, what does the Lord ask them to do? Well, guess what? They're not going to have any trouble with the first half of that gospel, are they? Because they're hearing a message of condemnation all day long. Their circumstances are preaching to them the message of condemnation. You're lost. And so what does James tell them to do? You must boast in your exaltation. What exaltation? Well, the exaltation they have in Christ. In Christ, when God looks at us, the only person in the universe whose opinion of us really matters in the end, you know what he looks at you and sees? He could not have higher esteem for you. You could not be more honored before him. You could not be more of a success before him. You could not have fulfilled his will, the one who really matters. Before him, you're a true beauty. You're truly strong. You're truly fulfilled. And so what must you do? And everyone, by the way, on a day-to-day -day basis, probably goes between these two extremes, feeling like I'm in a lowly situation or feeling like I feel incredibly rich. Moments that feel heavenly and moments that feel hellish. When you're in the moments of hellishness, here's what you need to remember. My circumstances are telling me I'm condemned, and yet I know that in Christ, I could not be more accepted and loved. That will give you radical stability. Now, some of you are just on the other end of things a lot of the time. You walk into a room and people just smile because they know things are going to be okay. You're good at your job. You're competent. You have enough money. And uh, if you ever feel a little bit sad, you can just go on Amazon and buy something and you'll feel better. And I don't know what, you know, <laughs> I don't know what does it for you. Um, but it's, you know, now, of course, we all go modulate probably between those two things. But in those moments, your, your circumstances are preaching to you the other side of the gospel, aren't they? Things are okay. Okay, I have some hope. Your circumstances, not reality, but your circumstances are preaching to you, I'm, very, I'm doing very well. I'm approved. Literally, I swipe my credit card and it says, approved. I'm appro I have enough money. I'm approved. 
You think that doesn't sink in spiritually into your soul? And so what do you need in that moment? Let the rich boast in his humiliation. One of these is harder than the other. Can you tell which one? It's going to be hard work for us with all the privileges that we have to remember that we're sinners and every gift, and by the way, this ruins all gifts for us to some extent when we think we're entitled to them. In Christ, our greatest gifts, the greatest, most heavenly parts of our lives are beautified beyond compare because we realize they are what they are. They're gifts. James 1 says it. James 1.17 says, every gift from above coming down from the Father of lights. What does that do to us? It beautifies those gifts. It makes them even more heavenly rather than saying, well, duh, of course that happened. Have you seen me? Uh, which is, you know, that's the posture of soul we often have in those moments. Um, we come to see them as a good gift from our Father who is generous, who gives generously to all. And we go, what did I do to deserve this? Do you see a life of radical wholeness, of radical integrity? Moments like that, every 10 minutes, returning to this. God has given me so much more than I deserve, whether I'm on the mountaintops or in the valley deep, and yet he has loved me beyond compare because of Jesus. James somehow learned that, and he wants us to learn it too. And if we follow him in it, we too will become radically whole at the deepest level. Let's do this together this summer, all right? Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for James. You know James quite well, uh, and we long to take his words to heart, literally, to take them down deep into us, to become radically whole, to become not lacking integrity, but possessing deep integrity, Lord. We know so many things about God. We know so many things about you. We know you're the creator. You love us. You sustain us. You, you are all-knowing. Um, you're everywhere. Lord, if you would begin to connect the dots for us between what we believe about God on paper and the way that we actually live, what if we did that, Lord? You can do it for us. You can do it. Fill us with confidence in you that if we entrust our souls to you in the smallest things today, you will lead us to strength and beauty and you will lead our world into greater joy. It will be good. You will be with us. Convince us of this, Lord. It's so unnatural for us. And we pray that you would do this for the glory of King Jesus. Amen.